Chris Watts. Piece of shit, Chris Watts. The monster that brutally slaughtered his family. That precious little voice that you just heard, singing about her daddy being a hero, that was Bella Watts, daughter of the evil, sick fuck, Chris Watts. That's what we're talking about today, guys. Talking about this family and how it all went down. Welcome back. This is Michelle. Thanks for joining me today on this twisted tale of murder, infidelity, betrayal, and a double life. And just such sadness. I hate this guy. I hate him to the core. Absolute disgust for this piece of pure dog shit. Actually, that would be an insult to dog shit. This guy is worse than dog shit. He is a vile monster. He is pure evil. And this topic really hits me harder than most. I can somewhat distance myself when we're talking about other killers. Don't get me wrong. All the stories I talk about are disturbing and upsetting. And I don't want to make it sound like I am in any way downplaying the tragedy of other victims in other stories above this one. But this one, I get a little bit more riled up over, a little more worked up about, a little more emotional over. This one hits close to home. This case happened just miles from where we used to live in Colorado. We passed by this neighborhood and through this town every day on the way to work. My husband's work was just down the road from the house where they lived. And the county road that this asshat drove to dispose his family is the road near where we used to live, the road that I traveled every day. When this happened, it shocked the community to the core. It disturbed everyone deeply. This monster was living among us. And evil isn't always obvious. If there is anything that you have learned from following true crime and serial killers, it is that you know it is absolutely possible to wear one mask when you face the world, all while hiding your true evil self behind it. So let's talk about this story. If you had watched the footage of Chris and Shannon's wedding prior to this slaughter, you would think, what a cute couple. All the pictures online, the videos, so much happiness, so much love. Don't be fooled by what you see on social media. Don't believe everything you see online. The summer of 2018 should have been a happy time for the Watts family. Chris Watts, the husband, was 33 at the time, and his wife, Shannon, 34, they just found out that they were expecting a son to join their family, along with four-year-old Bella and three-year-old Celeste, in their suburban home of Frederick, Colorado. Now, Frederick, Colorado is about 27 miles north of Denver, and it's kind of a a town that's in a clump or mix of a few other towns together. They kind of intertwine. It consists of Frederick, Firestone, Decono, and Erie. It's somewhat odd because it's not a suburb of Denver and suburbs tend to kind of do that. Um, these are legit just some small towns that are north of Denver mixed along the interstate that are among other towns that spread across the interstate. The population of Frederick is somewhere around uh, 13 to 14,000. 
And uh, currently, right now, Frederick is actually ranked the number one safest city in Colorado. If you look at these stats at the graph of crime, um, it has a bunch of zeros lined up for murders when it's tallying up the crimes, except for there's one that was recorded in 2007 and then three in 2018 because of this fucker. So Chris worked as an operator at Anadarko Petroleum and Shannon worked for the nutritional supplement company Lavelle and their lives pretty much revolved around their daughters. Um, side note, this Lavelle company that she worked for, um, if you look into it, it totally sounds like a pyramid scheme. Um, super shady. They technically sell product so they kind of get through that loophole of the label of a pyramid scheme but this company totally totally super shady um totally sounds like a pyramid scheme anyways moving on so from the outside they appear to be happy um but shannon's friends recently started hearing about troubles um from her uh troubles in their marriage but still no one could ever have guessed the brutal murders they were about to to happen um, and ruin this family. So here's how it unfolded. Here's the timeline. And I'm gonna go through this timeline here and understand I'm going to account what actually happened, what eventually came out as the truth. And then we will discuss details afterwards about his original story, how he changed his story. And we'll talk about some of the behavior um, and just kind of dive into some of the details. But let me run through the timeline first. So in 2010, the couple met uh, when Chris sent Shannon a Facebook friend request. Shannon calls Passaic, New Jersey, her hometown on Facebook, but later moved to North Carolina, where she and Chris met through Facebook, through social media. Um, here she is. Here's a little clip of her talking about that on social media. I got a friend, friend request from Chris on Facebook and I was like, oh, what the heck, I'm never gonna meet him. Except, well, one thing led to another and eight years later, we have two kids, we live in Colorado and he's the best thing that has ever happened to me. November 3rd, 2012, Shannon and Chris tie the knot in Charlotte, North Carolina. They seem completely happy uh, her family seemed to totally love him. They welcome him into their family. Her brother, in the speech he was giving at the wedding, said something along the lines of how she finally met a good guy, and they're all so happy for her. So they moved to Frederick, Colorado, after they had visited Colorado, and they fell in love with it. Um, December 17th of 2013, their first child, Bella Marie Watts, is born. Shanann was so excited to have her first baby girl. She spent every minute thanking God and taking care of her precious gift that the Lord had blessed her with. How she loved and cherished her. That's what the obituary read. Bella was known as being the calm one. July 17th, 2015, their second daughter, Celeste, is born. They nickname her Cece. Um... She was often called Rampage because she wasn't quite as chill as her older sister. Um, the obituary 
read this about Cece. Oh, how Shannon was so excited to be able to have another child because of her battle with lupus. She was determined to stay healthy, and with her love for her, Celeste, every moment with her was a blessing. Um, Shannon was diagnosed with lupus when she was 26 years old, just FYI. Um, so in June of 2015, they filed bankruptcy. Um, their combined income was 90000 a year in 2014. They had credit card debt. They had student loan debt, medical bills. So they filed for bankruptcy in 2015, stating that their $3,000 a month mortgage payment and $600 a month car payments took up most of their $4,900 um, in monthly expenses. Additionally, apparently their homeowners association was suing them for unpaid HOA fees. In May of 2018, Shannon posts a sweet Facebook live video. In this 31 minute video, um, Shannon gushes about family life saying, I love waking up now on Saturdays and being able to enjoy my family. And she talks about being excited about the upcoming summer in Colorado. She says, I believe that everything in life happens for a reason. And I also believe people are placed in our life for a reason. Chris can be seen in the background playing with the girls in the video. Um, June 11th, 2018, Shannon surprises Chris with the news that they are expecting. So um, the video was later released by Nine News in Colorado, and um, Shannon was wearing a t-shirt that said, oops, we did it again. And she surprises Chris with the news of their pregnancy in a video. His reaction, um, he seems happy. He says, that's awesome. Um, and here's a little clip of her telling the girls about the new baby that's coming. Hey, guess what, girls? Mommy has a baby in her belly. Are you guys excited? Yes. Are you really excited? Oh my goodness. Come give me hugs. Oh. Oh. <laughs> I love you, girl. I got the baby a hug. You want to give the baby a hug? I love you, Bella. You're so sweet. Give me a kiss. Mommy. Mommy. Yes, baby. June 17th, 2018, Shannon posts a Father's Day message to Chris on Facebook. Chris, we are so incredibly blessed to have you, the message says. You do so much every day for us and take such great care of us. You are the reason I was brave enough to agree to number three. From laundry to kids' showers, you are incredible and we are so lucky to have you in our life. Happy Father's Day. Shortly after that, Chris starts talking to Nicole Kessinger. So Nicole Kessinger works at Anadarko Petroleum's Environmental Department and she would see the operators, including Chris, on the way to the fridge. Chris came by her office and struck up a conversation one day. And they had their first meeting outside of work later that month. In July of 2018, Chris starts a physical relationship with Nicole Kessinger. According to the Denver Post, Chris sees Kessinger about four or five times a week. And they start a physical relationship in early July. 
He tells her that he's almost divorced. Later that month, while Shanann and the girls are out of town in North Carolina, North Carolina, he tells Kessinger the divorce is final. I'm sorry about the noise in the background. Again, I have to apologize every single time I'm talking to you guys because my dog always makes her way in here and she always lays on the ground and she's either snoring or uh, she's just moving around making weird noises right now. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I hope you're all dog people because I definitely am and she's always here making noise. So to continue, let's move on with the story. Um, Insider reports that Kessinger goes to Chris's home for the first time on July 4th, and they have their first phone call on record on July 7th. They also go on a date to Shelby American Collection Car Museum on July 14th and spend the night at Great Sand Dunes National Park on July 28th, all while his family is away. On July 30th, he gives Nicole Kessinger this love note the day before he leaves to go join his family on vacation in North Carolina. Here's the love note. It says, Wow, where do I ever start? The first day I saw you, you took my breath away. The first day I had the guts to talk to you, I got lost in those stunning green eyes. The first day we hung out in the park together, I knew I was addicted. The first time we kissed, I knew I had met the most amazing, unique, and electric woman ever. We have had a lot of firsts together, Nikki. And I want to keep having them with you. Watts closes the letter quoting country music, um, Kanan Smith, uh, a song saying, All night till the sun comes back, I want to love, want to love, want to love you like that. The next day, July 31st, Chris flies to North Carolina to join his family. Despite it being a family vacation, text messages that Shanann uh, forwarded to a friend show signs of trouble between the couple. Further messages also show that there was tension between her and Chris, uh, Chris's parents. Um, apparently there was some fight going on with uh, a situation. Her, uh, his mom almost gave Cece something she was allergic to. Shanann threw a fit. They were in a fight about it snowballed into something big. So text messages from Shanann to her friends revealed that she was unhappy with the way the marriage was going in the weeks leading up to the murders. She would tell her friends that Chris wasn't reaching out when either of them were away on business trips and that he didn't even kiss her after five weeks of being apart. I wanted to cry, she wrote in one text, and she accused him of having an affair because he wasn't interested in sex even after over a month of apart. Something has changed in the last five weeks, she wrote. In fact, Shanann told one friend, Chris told me last night he's scared to death about this third baby, and he's happy with just Bella and Celeste and doesn't want another baby. So now we're going up to August 9th, uh, 2018. Shanann leaves on a business trip to Arizona. After confiding to friends about her troubles with Chris, she texts a friend that she and Chris had the best talk yet. Before she leaves on her trip, she even leaves him a handwritten letter. And here's the letter that she left him before um, she took off for her business trip. My dearest Chris, I don't know where to begin. 
I am so lost for words. I can't even explain how much this pain hurts. The last five weeks have been so hard. I missed everything about you. I missed your morning breath, your touch, your lips against mine. I miss holding you. I miss smelling you in the sheets. I miss talking to you in person. I missed watching you laugh and play with the kids. I love seeing their smiles with you. I miss seeing you naked and on top of me, making love. OMG, I missed having you around when I felt alone and upset. I just flat out missed the hell out of you. I really don't know how we fell out of capability. Er, compatibility. Sorry, that I totally misread that. Compatibility. The only major thing that happened was between your mom and I. I can't change what happened and will work with you and them to work things out. There has to be a mutual respect from all parties. An apology from your mom personally would be nice. Our daughter's lives can't be replaced. I've only seen you shut down like this once, and that was with your parents after our wedding. We deserve to have all family in our life and with love, not hate. I don't want to lose you ever. I will be civil and get along with your mom. We just all need to have mutual respect. I will do anything for you. The last thing on earth I want is for you to hurt. You deserve the world, and I hate seeing you hurt. It hurts me. I can't and won't lose you without fighting for us. I will always fight for our marriage and you. This is the hardest thing I have ever gone through, but you are worth it. Tell me what you need. I love you, baby, with all my heart, always and forever. Love always, Shannon. August 11th, while Shannon is away on her trip, Chris gets a babysitter saying that he's going to a baseball game with coworkers, but goes to a bar with Kessinger instead. And Shannon notices charges on their credit card while she's in Arizona, and it kind of raises some question and suspicion. Okay, so now we're going into August 13th. 1.48 a.m. Shannon returns from her business trip. Her friend, Nicole Atkinson, gives Shannon a ride to her home on the 2800 block of Saratoga Trail after they get back from their business trip. Chris admits that when she got home, they had sex. Chris wakes Shannon as he's getting ready to go to work and wants to talk about their marriage and future, according to his later confession. This is how it went down. Despite Shannon carrying their unborn son, who they already named Nico Lee, by the way, he tells her about the affair and that their marriage won't last. Apparently, she told him that he was never going to see his kids again. And from there, he said it was implanted that he was going to do it. She wasn't fighting, he told authorities, as he jumped on her and strangled her to death. He goes on to say, these are some quotes from him in the interview when he comes out and tells all. He says, isn't it weird how I look back and what I remember so much is her face getting all black with streaks of mascara. All the weeks of me thinking about killing her and now I was faced with it. When she started to get drowsy, I somehow knew how to squeeze the jugular veins until it cut off the blood flow to her brain, and she passed out. I knew if I took my hands off of her, she would still keep me from Nikki. They asked me why she couldn't fight back. 
It's because she couldn't fight back. Her eyes filled with blood as she looked at me and she died. I knew she was gone when she relieved herself. Bella, who was four, comes in and asks what's wrong with mommy. He tells the kids that mommy is sick. Watts says that he tried to carry Shannon's body downstairs, but she was too heavy and he lost his grip. He ended up dragging her down the steps and then bundled her in the back of his truck. He loaded her body and his two daughters in the truck. He laid Shannon's dead body on the floor in the back and the two girls were sitting on the seats above her. And he drove to the oil field where he then smothered his two little girls with a blanket. Here he is describing this in his own words, how he did this. The girls are still in the truck. Okay. Did they ask you what you were doing, taking mommy out, or? Yeah, I don't know what I told them, but they did ask that. What they, what they say specifically? It was more of like, you know, what are you doing to mommy? Okay. All right. And then the girls, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned Bella was first, Cece was first, okay. Um, where exactly was she when it happened? In the back seat. Okay, was she just right next to Bella? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, um, so once again, was it a hand over her face? Was it? It was a blanket over and my hand. And then your hand, okay. And then so that just stopped her from breathing type thing? Okay, did she struggle at all? So, but my, it, I was blocking her face, and my hand was right here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. You had one hand here and one hand over her mouth. And we're just pushing her against the back of the seat, type thing. Okay. What was Bella doing? She's sitting there next to it. She didn't know what was going on. Okay. Could she see you? Okay. Tell me about what you were thinking. I wasn't. Bella was thinking it's what happened. Yeah. Right. Any partial hint of what I feel for those girls and what I feel for my wife, but nothing is, none of this would have happened, so I, don't, I wasn't thinking. Okay. So she's in the back seat. Okay. Um, and then once she's gone, then is it Bella next, or is did you pull CC out? I pulled CC out. Okay, so once CC's gone, Bella's still there in the car alive, and then you pulled CC out, what'd you do with her? So she went into the tank, and Bella was still in the back of the truck alive. Okay. Um, with regard to that tank, did you bring up Cece, put her down, open the hatch? Brought her up, open the hatch. And I put her in. Okay. And then went down to Bella. Tell me what happened there. She said, what happened to Cece? First, yes. It's the same thing, the exact same thing that happened to me as CC. Did she ask you that? Okay. So Bella's pretty smart. How did she sound when she asked you that, Chris? She had that, that, that soft voice she always had. Yeah. And what exactly did she say? She said exactly it's the same thing that happened to me as CC. And then I said, I don't remember what I said. 
I don't say if I just said yes like a horrible person or if I just put this put that blanket over her too and did the same thing. Same blanket, same way? Mm-hmm. Okay. She said no daddy. And that's the last thing she said. So he says out of all three, Bella is the only one that put up a fight. I will hear her soft little voice for the rest of my life saying, Daddy, no. She knew what I was doing to her. She may not have understood death, but she knew I was killing her. He proceeded to stuff their bodies in the oil tanks of the property. And it was it's noted that their poor little bodies had tears in their skin and broken bones from being shoved in the tank. So then, after he did all of this, he was actually seen on a convenience store camera stopping off for like a breakfast sandwich at a gas station. So he goes, murders his family, buries Shannon's body in the ground by the oil tanks, shoves his two little precious daughters in oil tanks, and he stops off for a damn breakfast sandwich at a gas station. Okay, moving on, moving on. So, it is now the afternoon of August 13th, around 1.40 p.m. Shannon's friend becomes worried when she doesn't hear from Shannon. I called her and texted her several times, she said. I knew she had a doctor's appointment that morning because she's pregnant, and she didn't show up for it, and I was even more concerned. Atkinson calls the police, who do a welfare check. Shannon's phone, keys, purse are all found at the house. According to the news stations, husband Chris says she said she was going to a friend's house with the kids, and that's the last I heard, and that was it. It was very vague. So he's saying that they were on a play date, is what he keeps saying. And while they're searching the house, he also comes out of the bedroom with her wedding ring, saying that he found it on the nightstand. I don't know if this was his way of maybe trying to make it look like she was leaving him, but the rest of her shit was still there. Her phone, her medications, everything was still there. Um, they also noticed that the bed sheets were stripped from the bed and there was one missing. So then the neighbor grabs the police and he has footage um, from his outdoor cameras and it shows the driveway and the front area of their house. So he has them come over to watch. Um, this neighbor, Nate, his security camera, which showed that no one else but Chris had left the Watts home. Nate told the officer on call and on camera that Chris was fidgety and talkative in a way he'd never seen him before. Nate said that Chris seemed suspicious. And Nate, this, this neighbor, Nate, um, later on also told Dr. Oz, the other thing I thought that was definitely weird was he wasn't watching the footage at all. He wasn't, he would look at it for a second and then he'd go back to his phone or look at it for a second and then look away. And you, if my family were missing, I would be glued to that TV 100% to see if I could see absolutely anything. Man, I 100% agree with this. If your wife, your husband, your kid, whoever, is missing and your neighbor's like hey I have footage come watch let's see if we can find something out wouldn't you be staring at that looking for any clue to figure out where your family is this guy is so fidgety 
Watch the video. His hands are on top of his head. He's shifting around. He He's not watching. He's barely like glancing over, looking away. His actions are so sketch, so sketch. So um, later on, um, the Denver news station um, would later report that uh, the neighbor, Nate, also told the officer he had heard them fight um, like full out screaming at each other at the top of their lungs um, and that Chris gets crazy when they had fights. But he also said he didn't think that the fights were any worse than any other couple. So even even so, um, this neighbor recognizes some red flags. And another neighbor also commented on overhearing a noteworthy fight between Chris and Shannon. Um, her name was Melinda Phillips, this neighbor, and she described an argument in their driveway um, that same sum that summer, she said their body language was really angry and they were just fighting back and forth. He was gesturing his hands and they were shaking their heads and it was definitely an argument. I didn't really think much of it because Lord knows I've had the same arguments with my husband. They caught my eye and suddenly everything changed. They stopped being so angry and they started talking a lot more calmly. He even gave her a hug. Mind you, this was all in the space of 30 seconds to a minute. From full-blown fight to hugs in less than a minute. It was incredible, Melinda said. Okay, moving on. So after 24 hours, there is no luck. They brought in cadaver dogs to sniff around the house and nothing's coming up. Um, the next day, August 14th, Chris pleads for his family's return on local news. So a reporter for Denver 7 was at the scene and got the interview on the porch. Um, and this reporter said that Chris volunteered um, to have him come up and talk to him. So he didn't even have to ask. He, you know, he volunteered to talk. And in that interview, the reporter said he really couldn't speculate or accuse or assume, but he wanted to try to ask questions that might get something out of Chris. Um, and one of the questions he asked was, did you guys get into an argument? And Chris' response was, it wasn't like an argument. We had an emotional conversation. I'll leave it at that. Um, he goes on to say, Shannon, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, just come back. Like if somebody has her, just please bring her back. I need to see everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete without anybody here. Please bring them back. Um, so he's trying to give the appearance like he's appealing to the community for help to find his missing family. Meanwhile, investigators from the local police department, the CBI, the FBI, had been going through Chris's phone records, which show that he had been having an affair with one of his co-workers from the Anadarko Petroleum. Um, then on August 15th, two days after his wife and daughters disappear, he fails a polygraph test. And this is where everything changes. So August 15th, um, he fails a polygraph test. Uh, he ends up confessing to his father, Ronnie, and then he confesses to the officials that he killed Shannon. Um, but he falsely claims that the reason for his murder was because she smothered their daughters. So let me go into his first story. This is what he tells them to begin with. He's 
in the interrogation room. He fails a polygraph test. He's still not talking. He's still not giving anything up. They tell him, hey, your company truck has a GPS on it and we will know exactly where you went. He's still claiming he didn't lie. They tell him they know he's lying. Yeah. He's playing this little game. They're kind of just going rounds. And there's no emotion with this guy either. Um, so after going rounds, trying to get something out of this guy, they try a different tactic. They say, did Shannon do something to the girls? Then you did something to her? Trying to get him to talk. And this seemed to work. But my first initial thought, initial thought when I heard this um, was that this suggestive question may be where he got the idea to come up with the story that he proceeds with. So he asks to talk to his dad and they let him. So they leave the room. They let his dad in. And then he tells his dad, and this is all recorded because when you're in an interrogation room, everything's recorded. You can't expect to <laughs> have complete privacy. Maybe he knew he was being recorded. And so he was saying this to make it sound like, oh, he's fessing up to his father. So it must be true because he's not telling us. And anyway, so he goes on to say that he caught Shannon killing the girls. So he killed her. So here is the audio. It's kind of hard to hear, but here's the audio of him talking to his dad, telling him this story of what went down. I don't want to protect her. What? I don't want to protect her. You don't want to protect her. I don't know what else to say. I don't know. She heard him.
Jesus. Yeah. I can see like chips on top of the machine. Want to choke my girl? Did she kill him? They're, they're blue. Both of them. Yeah. She choked both of them to death. I freaked out in the champagne. Okay, so, I mean, this ass makes himself to be the hero in this scenario. He is so narcissistic that he has to make himself look like the hero and make his poor dead wife, who can't even defend herself, the bad guy. So while this is going on, they're searching out on the oil fields and they find the Messine bedsheet. And he's telling them in the interrogation room now where the bodies are. Also, uh, Kessinger came forward and goes to the authorities and tells them all about the affair um, and said that he told her that they were getting a divorce. So, I mean, you, you're seeing this unfold and you know it's only a matter of time before they come looking for you if you're the mistress. So, yeah, going to the police before they come to find you looks better on your part. So, I get that. That was a good move on her end. Um We'll talk a little bit more about her later in a bit, though. Um, so the 16th of August is when they found the bodies of Shannon, Bella, and Celeste. Um, They're recovered at the oil fields of Chris's work. The same day, he appears in Weld County Court for a bond hearing, and he is denied. August 21st, Chris is charged with first-degree murder. A week after he pleaded for their safe return, Chris is charged with three counts of first-degree murder plus two additional first-degree charges for victims being 12 or younger. Additionally, he faces another count for the unlawful termination of a pregnancy, which was very important to her family that he got this. And yes, I get that. Absolutely. Um, plus three counts of tampering with a body. So he's got a total of nine charges. September 1st, was the funeral that was held for Shannon and the daughters in North Carolina. Um, Shannon, Bella, and Celeste are remembered at the funeral at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church in Pinehurst, North Carolina. During the 90-minute ceremony, it started with an amazing singing of Amazing Grace. Chris was never mentioned. The priest reads a statement from Shannon's father. You are nothing but pure love, always caring for everyone. You will always be daddy's little girl. 
It is also sad that there was issues um, getting the little girl's bodies back to North Carolina because they were so saturated in oil and combustible that they were dangerous to fly out there. So again, oh my gosh, the whole situation, every, it just, it, it just gets worse and worse. Like every detail, just sickening, just so sick. Okay. So November 6th, 2018, Chris pleads guilty to all nine counts. He appears in court pleading guilty to all nine criminal accounts and Shannon's family requests that the death penalty not be sought. November 19th, Chris is sentenced to life in prison. Judge Marcelo Kupkow calls the murder spree, quote, perhaps the most inhumane and vicious crime I have ever handled out of the thousands of cases I have seen. He issues five life sentences without the possibility of parole, including 48 years for unlawful termination of Shannon's pregnancy and 36 years for disposing of the bodies of his family. Also on that day, Shannon's parents file for wrongful death against Chris. December 3rd, 2018, Chris is transferred to a Wisconsin correctional facility. Due to safety concerns, um, he's moved out of Colorado to Dodge Correctional Facility in Wappen, Wisconsin. Um, yeah, because everybody in Colorado pff, wanted him dead. He, I'm actually surprised nothing has happened to him. Honestly, he's still alive and there. And anyways, moving on. February 18th, 2019, Chris confesses to killing his daughters in a detailed explanation in a five-hour interview from prison. Chris recounts the harrowing details of his young daughter's final moments and confesses to killing them and disposing their bodies. This was like the epitome of being angry, the epitome of showing rage, and the epitome of losing your mind, he said even admitting that older daughter Bella asked if he was going to do the same thing he did to his sister and that the four-year-old tried to fight back. November 18th of 2019, Chris has ordered to pay Shannon's parents $6 million. Almost an entire year after they filed the civil suit, uh, the Weld County Judge Todd Taylor ruled that Chris owed Shannon's parents $6 million and that amount will grow with 8% interest. So they're unlikely to actually get this money, but what it does is it's preventing Chris from profiting, pro profiting, profiting. It prevents Chris from profiting from the murders in any way, sorry. Um, so let's talk about a few things he did right after the murders, uh, some of his behavior. So according to authorities, he made phone calls after the murders, one of them to the girls' school to unenroll them. He also apparently texted a realtor to sell the house. And of course, he texted his girlfriend and he told them that they were gone. That's all he said. I guess she didn't ask for details. I maybe would have, but you know, like, oh, she finally left or what? No. Okay. It's just shady that she wouldn't ask for details. Like, she already knows what's going down, maybe. I mean, there's speculation on what how involved she is in it. Um, all right, here comes my bulldog, too. She's she's coming in. Oh, you hear that heavy bulldog breathing. Sorry, guys. Okay, she's settling in. Hopefully she won't be too disturbing. Yes, two dogs in here. Um, so, 
After all the confessions, it's really obvious that these murders were premeditated. The evidence against Chris and his and his own actions strongly indicate that uh, they were not done in a sudden fit of rage. There's no question of whether he suddenly snapped and made a terrible mistake in the heat of the moment. Um, he knew what he was doing. Wow, my bulldog is really loud behind me. Um, but yeah, he knew what he was doing. And the last day that he spent with his two little girls was no different from a normal fun Sunday. They watched cartoons. They went to Target to pick up a gift for a birthday party. They ate cold pizza for lunch. And they went to the party where the girls had an epic time. At 5 p.m., he told a co-worker that he was going to go out to the oil field, the location where the bodies were found eventually, um, the next morning instead of going into the office. And he says, August 12th, when I finished putting the girls to bed, I walked away and said, that's the last time I'm going to be tucking my babies in. I knew what was going to happen the day before, and I did nothing to stop it. Watts also confessed that he slipped oxycodone to Shannon several weeks before the murders, hoping to cause a miscarriage. He said, I thought it would be easier to be with Nicole if Shannon wasn't pregnant. He said that his girlfriend wanted to be the one to give him a son. So now let's talk about how he tried to pin this crime, the crime of the girls, on Shannon. So this man kills his entire family in cold blood. And we don't know if he had one ounce of remorse while or after he did it. But we do know he did his best to try and cover it up. His nervous rambling, his unusual behavior and fidgeting gave him away. Um, but think about the efforts he made even in this state. He gave police interviews. He urged his family to come back to him on national television. He called and texted Shannon multiple times as if she could answer. All that time he knew that she would never see or hear him again. And what is so terribly disgusting to me is how even after he failed that lie detector test, he crafted this story to publicly absolve himself of a fair share of the blame. He was, somebody said online, and I like this quote, he was ready to kill his pregnant wife a second time, this time by wanting people to believe that she murdered their children. So let's talk about Nicole Kessinger for a second. Uh, she lied and she got away with it. Let's talk about that. According to Nicole Kessinger, the mistress, her and Chris struck up a friendship and began dating only in June. She initially said that she had no idea that Chris was married and had a family. However, the recovered search history, and she tried to clear her search history, um, but of course they recovered all that. And she Googled the name Shannon Watts and Chris Watts as early as September 1st, 2017. And she did this multiple times, well before June, which is when she and Chris told the police that they got together. Uh, she claims that Chris was more serious about the relationship than she was. But according to her phone data on August 4th, so this is just like a week before the murders, she was browsing wedding dresses online for over two hours. And on August 8th, 
she did a Google search on marrying your mistress. Police reports reveal a few more internet searches she had done after the murders. One of them was, can cops trace text messages? So uh, she must have found the answer to that because she deleted all her messages and photos and search history before she contacted the police. Um, she also Googled Amber Fry. Um, and if you don't know who that is, that is the mistress of Scott Peterson, the man who was convicted of murdering his wife, Lacey Peterson. So we might not know exactly how much Nicole knew, but all of these actions just show that she was not completely innocent in this. Here's another disturbing fact. Chris attempted to kill the girls more than once. He had a second chance to let the girls live and he didn't. The first time Chris attempted to murder his two children, Shannon was still alive. In his own words, he says, August 13th, morning of, I went to the girls' rooms first, before Shannon and I had our argument. I went to Bella's room, then Cece's room, and used a pillow from their bed. That's why the cause of death was smothering. After I left Cece's room, then I climbed back in bed with Shannon, and our argument ensued. After Shannon had passed, Bella and Cece woke back up. I'm not sure how they woke back up, but they did. Bella's eyes were bruised, and both girls looked like they had been through trauma. They made the act that much worse knowing I went to their rooms first and knowing I still took their lives at the location of the batteries. The girls were just kind of running around the house and watching me with scared looks on their faces. Bella started to cry and when she did, Celeste started whimpering. What a nightmare this was. I realize now the girls getting up and walking around may have been God's third attempt to stop what I was doing. So let that sink in for a minute. Chris Watts killed his children before having the argument with his wife. He realizes he was unsuccessful at killing his children after killing Shannon and then proceeded to load his truck and drive them for an hour away to the oil site where he ended up once again killing them for good and dumping their bodies in separate oil barrels so they couldn't wake up. So when Chris spoke to Denver 7 reporter Thomas Hopal in um on the porch he's the one who um got that interview on the porch that raised a lot of eyebrows um he was emotionless he seemed unaffected he seemed very scripted he you know was saying the right words but his actions were showing different i'm going to show you some clips right now or give you some clips right now of that porch interview. And it's even better if you watch it because his manner mannerisms and his body language really give you the whole story. But here are some clips from what he said on the porch. Uh, Chris Watts, W-A-T-T-S. Wow. What, what's going on right now around your house? Right now it's you got canine units, the sheriff's department, everybody's like they're they're doing their best right now to figure out like if they can get a scent 
see where they went. If they went on foot, they went in a car, they went somewhere. And right now it's just like they've they've been on point. They're going through the house trying to get a scent, and hopefully they can pick something up to where it's it's going to lead to something. What happened? Uh, she, like, she came home from the airport 2 a.m. and I left around 5:15. She was still here, and like about 12:10 in that afternoon, her friend Nicole showed up at the door. Like I had texted Shannon a few times that day, called her, say you know, but she never got back to me. But she wasn't getting back to any of her people as well, and that's what really concerned a lot of people. Is like she's not getting back to her. Like if she doesn't get back to me, that's fine. Like she gets busy during the day. But she didn't get back to her people, which was very concerning. And Nicole called me when she was at the door, and that's when I came home. And then walked in the house, and nothing was vanished. Nothing was here. I mean, she wasn't. She wasn't here. The kids weren't here. No, nobody was here. And so, how many times did you try calling her? I called her three times. Texted her about three times, just to say, you know, what's going on. Like I did. I could after after the after I called her and texted her once. It's like. Right, Maybe she was just busy, like she'd just gotten back, you know, like everybody's probably calling her from her trip. She just got back from Arizona. And I, I mean, right now I don't even want to just like throw anything out there. Like I hope that she's somewhere safe right now and with the kids. But I mean, could she have been, could she have just taken off? I don't know. But if somebody has her and they're not safe, like I want them back now. Like that, that, that's what's in my head. Like if they're safe right now, they're going to come back. But if they're not safe right now, that's what, that's the not knowing part. Like if they're not safe, I, I, last night I was, I had every light in the house on. I was hoping that I would just get, just ran over by the kids running in the door and just like barrel rushing me, but it didn't happen. And it was just a traumatic night trying to be here. I'm going to ask some kind of tough questions about your relationship with the kids. Yeah, every, every, I mean, yeah, my, my kids are my life. I mean, those those smiles light up my life, and this like I mean, last night like during like at, you know when they usually eat dinner, it was just like I miss them like I mean I miss telling them hey you got to eat that or you're not gonna get your dessert you know and just like you're not gonna get your snack after I, I miss that like I, I miss them you know cuddle up on their couches they have like a Minnie Mouse couch and a Sophia couch that they cuddle up on and watch you know bubble guppies or something, and it was just like you know I mean, I, I I was. <laughs> It was tearing me apart last night, and I needed that. I needed that last night, and for that, for nobody to be here last night and to go into their rooms and not and know that I wasn't going to turn the rain machines on, and I know that I wasn't going to turn their monitor on, and know I wasn't going to kiss them to bed tonight. It was. It, it was. I, I. That's why last night was just horrible. I couldn't do it. it I just. I just want. I want everybody to just come home. Right, wherever they're at, come home. Did, did you guys get into an argument before she left? It wasn't, it wasn't like an argument. We had an emotional conversation, but I'll leave it at that. But it's, I just want them back. <laughs> I, just, I just want them to come back. And if, if they're not safe right now, that's what's, that's what's tearing me apart. Because if they are safe, they're coming back. But if they're not, this, this, this has got to stop. Like somebody has to come forward. What did um, your neighbors? Did they see anything? No, like we've we've uh, the, the police department went door to door asking like cameras and everything, just like nothing. And my last question, if you have any of them, feel free to step in. My last question: If your wife can see this, if she if she can watch these, what would you, what would you 
Shanann, Bella, Celeste, if you're out there, just, just just come back. Like if somebody has her, just please bring her back. I need to see everybody. I need to see everybody again. This house is not complete with without anybody here. Please bring her back. So let's talk about what experts say about his behavior. Even as Weld County homicide detectives interrogate him, getting the husband and father to show even a little emotion over the murder of his family was a challenge. Not until he confessed. That's when the tears started. And it's because he was caught. He wasn't crying when he was talking about his children and wife missing, about them being dead. No. When he got caught, that's when he started crying. So, who was Christopher Lee Watts leading up to this time where he killed his family? That question was put to a pair of Colorado's most respectable police psychology experts, Lottie Flatter and John Nicoletti. So, it's important to note that these two specialists worked with police on two of Colorado's most horrific crimes. They worked with police at the <clears throat> Columbine High School shooting and also on the Aurora Theater shooting. They are used to being lied to. It's how they've helped the police get to the truth for more than two decades now. And they watched the Denver 7's front porch interview with Chris Watts the day that his family vanished. And they say that the lies that Chris Watts told for more than two months about the disappearance of his family were as easy to read as a children's book. And it begins with the interview on the front porch. He is so into himself, Lottie Flatter says. This is all about him. This is a scenario that he has built up, that he has the right to do this. She was referring to <clears throat> the cold and calculated way that Watts made statements to the reporter. He said things like, I mean, my kids are my life. I mean, those smiles are my life. Please bring her back. I need to see everybody. We can't see the whole body, but it looks like he's holding his arms together, Nicoletti said. That's kind of keeping it together and he's trying to maintain control. We call that staging. Flatter and Nicoletti say, <laughs> sorry, the bulldog behind me just made a horrible sound. Oh my God. Again, let me apologize for the dog in the room. <clears throat> I did not mean to laugh during such an intense story. Uh, apologies. Oh my gosh. Anyways. Um. So Flatter and Nicoletti um, say that his lies and his evolving story give a very clear picture of who he is and why he saw murder as the best way to get what he wants. They also believe that his decision to give the reporter this impromptu interview on his front porch was a textbook attempt to show homicide detectives that he's just a regular guy trying to help find his family. So... That leads us to the interrogation room at um, Weld County Sheriff's Office and his account. So detectives spend hours trying to get Watts to confess to his crime. 
His demeanor never changes. He repeated that he wanted Shannon and the girls to come home. Detectives kept telling Watts he knows that's not going to happen. You hear the desperation in his voice. He knows that he started to get pinned, Flatter says. If you had remorse and grief about killing your kids, Nicoletti said, that would be in a very intense moment for you. He's looking at it as a cognitive exercise. Even when detectives show Watts several family pictures, there was no emotional response. No tears when he's talking about killing the girls. No tears. The only time we saw tears is when they were talking about what's going to happen to him. That's very, very significant. But Watts had one more trick up his sleeve in a desperate attempt to stay in control. His story changed. Now, instead of simply not knowing what happened to his wife and girls, he makes up this story and tells his father that Shannon kills the girls. So he's basically saying she finds out that he wants a divorce. So she goes and kills their children. And in a fit of rage over her actions, he in turn kills her. Nobody's buying this story. Thatter explained, it's desperation. I'm getting caught, so I got to come up with something. She killed the kids. I freaked out. So Watts shows his first sign of emotion. Okay, it's up. He's caught. And that reality is setting in. This is why he's crying, because he's caught. It's the first time you see emotion. You didn't see any emotion when his family was killed. And then there's the chill Watt puts in the room after his confession. Following his confession, Watts was offered lunch. When people have trauma, when they lose somebody, they lose their appetite, Nicoletti explained. Yeah, I'll have a pizza. I don't care what kind. He just explained how he stuffed his children into a tank of oil at the burial place. Yeah, I'll have a pizza. That is one evil man. As for the public reaction to the Watts murders, both Flatter and Nicoletti agree that obsessing over this is unhealthy. Nicoletti believes the question about motive and possible mental illness will never be fully answered. And if people are obsessed about this case, they're going to become paranoid and they're going to start thinking, oh my God, my next door neighbor just took a family picture. So I can't trust anybody. So it brings us to the most frightening question of all. Are all of us capable of this kind of evil, of this kind of violence? And if you're asking that, you probably aren't. If you're asking that, you probably have some kind of conscience. So Chris Watts just spent his 36th birthday in prison. And a source says that he is ostracized by the other inmates and by the guards. No one wants anything to do with him, says the source. He's on the lowest social tier of the entire prison. He's in protective custody because if he's around other inmates, he'd be in real danger. He's an outcast, even among criminals. Watts can go for days without talking to anyone. Even the guards shun him. He's probably the most hated man in that prison, says this source. 
because he killed children. There's a definite pecking order in jail, and someone who hurts or kills kids is at the very bottom. The mistress who Chris Watts murdered his family to be with apparently is back in touch with him three years um, after changing her identity and disappearing. Um, Watts says his mistress, Nicole Kessinger, wrote to him inside the Dodge Correctional Institution in Wisconsin under her new name. Um, and this is coming from a fellow inmate, David Carter, um, in an interview that he gave. So this is what Carter said. He told me she said that she needed to speak to him to clear some things up. He wouldn't tell me exactly what she had said. Watts had said in 2019 um, that he was still in love with Kessinger and believed that some of the letters he received in prison were from her writing under assumed names. His ex-cellmate Carter, uh, who was released in February, um, said it was back in September last year that Watts first told him that Kessinger was writing to him. And Watts claimed that prison authorities discovered what was happening and punished him by suspending his email account and carefully monitoring all his mail. He wasn't supposed to have contact with her, but she initiated it by writing to him. Carter, 34, says Watts told him that he killed Shannon because he didn't want to pay child support. He didn't want the son that they were expecting and feared his wife would take their house in the divorce. Carter says, I don't buy any of that. Uh, Carter was in jail for meth possession and for stealing money from his employer, employers. Um, Arby's was his employer. Not that that matters, but... Um, Carter also goes on to say, I could never kill my entire family just because I didn't want to pay child support or because I didn't want a child. I have a lot of things going on in my life, but I have never wanted to stop and kill my entire family because I wanted certain things to go my way. So some folks insist that Shannon was de a demanding wife who drove Chris over the edge. In that light, people paint Chris as a victim of a bad marriage. The nice, quiet man who felt like he couldn't do anything right. There's one type of man to avoid at all costs. He cares so deeply about his own image as a good man that he hides his unhappiness and then blames his wife or family for his unhappiness. Guys like that seem to have the need to blame everyone else for their choices because if something doesn't turn out well, they don't feel responsible. Narcissistic people are excellent at crafting a mask that is different from who they really are. They know exactly what to do to manipulate people. They know how to get people to like them. And they often can seem even nicer or more empathetic than the average person. Some people scoff at the notion that Chris could be narcissistic. As if he's too wounded or sensitive to fit the bill. Yet this man brutally killed his pregnant wife and two small children. He wasn't too sensitive to do that. Chris feels that if the affair would have never happened with Nicole Kessinger, um, if she never would have come into his life, 
then the murders never would have happened. He thinks that she had this strong control over him that he described as like a leash that he wasn't able to get off of or get away from. And he thinks that that played a role in what happened. That is classic narcissism. Chris continues to make excuses and shift blame. There is a term for what Chris Watts is. Family annihilator. Most of these family annihilators are white men in their 30s. Men who are passive in nature, keep things in, and at some point their pent-up rage explodes. That is him to a T. And for those of you on the internet that are talking shit about Shannon and all of her social media posts, all the video that Chris didn't want to be in, how he didn't want his life out there like that, well, that is still no reason to brutally murder your entire family. Here's some advice. If your spouse is doing something you don't like, fix it or leave it. Don't cheat. Don't murder. Period. The bottom line in this is that this didn't have to happen. Chris Watts wanted a fresh start. He didn't want that family, the new baby. He didn't want all of that anymore for whatever reason. Doesn't matter what the reason is. He didn't want it. And instead of leaving, divorcing, whatever his options were, he chose the option to murder his family. He wanted a fresh start with the new woman in his life. And instead of getting a divorce, he took out other people's lives. So, this did not have to happen. Whatever reason he made these bad choices, whatever you want to call him, whatever you want to label him, whatever drove him to do it, he did it. And those lives are not here anymore because of him, because of this sick individual. So, I hope that his five life sentences stick. I hope that he is miserable his whole time. And there are just no more words to describe how sickening and disgusted I am at this man. Again, like I said at the beginning, truly, truly am disgusted by him. I hate him to the core. He is a horrible person. And I hope he rots in hell. That is it. That, that is the story. That is the disgusting story of this piece of shit, Chris Watts. So thank you again for listening. I am not sure what I'm going to be talking about next week, actually. So uh, if there is anything that anybody wants to hear about, please let me know. And you can follow me on Instagram at follow me into the dark uh, underscore uh, in between all those words or Facebook follow me into the dark um, shoot me a message let me know shout out to my listeners in other countries 
uh, Germany, United Kingdom, Iceland. Awesome. Thanks for listening. And I hope everybody has a great week. Um, and I will talk to you soon. And until then, stay dark, my friends. Bye.